engineers Simon Hawkes and Anthony Demanti, or Hawkes and AD to their mates, are on a journey down the river of water engineering. In this podcast series, Hawkes and AD share their inspiring conversations with a cross-section of people from the water industry and beyond. The conversations aim to motivate students and professionals alike to contribute to the growth of the engineering profession. So, without further ado, it's over to you lads. Hello listeners and welcome to our feature 007 edition of The Good Drop with Hawks and AD, a water industry flavoured podcast. My name is Anthony Dumanti, or AD, and I am joined here by my co-host and partner in crime. His name is Hawks, Simon Hawks. Hello, Simon. G'day, AD. Welcome. Good to be here again. So, start of the show today, episode 007. I see you've made already a an interesting connection with the uh, Hawks, Simon Hawks. One of the questions that's probably relevant for our guest today uh, is whether or not you could do your job if you didn't have your voice. So, AD, what would you say to that? Well, I would say there would be a lot of people out there that would love for me not to have a voice. I'm a pretty loud type of character in the office, and there'd be certainly a lot of people out there that would say, oh, geez, it'd be a lot quieter. Um, But having said that, as an Italian, I think I do have a pretty good backup to do my job using my hands. So I, I think when I reflect on it, yes, I could still do my job effectively. As long as you didn't lose your hands as well, hey? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. So today's guest is none other than voice coach and fellow podcaster, Sally Prosser. Nice to have you, Sally. Hello. It is so great to be here. Sally, thanks so much for having us. Can I just give you a very brief intro? I first met you in Oswater in Melbourne. I know you were giving your time to help presenters improve their communication technique, and I found the session you had with me fantastic. I really enjoyed your advice, and I just know how passionate you are in helping people speak with more confidence. So thank you very much. I hope you remembered our session. I absolutely do. I've uh, had involvement with Oswater since 2018 and it was actually the turning point of me starting my business. So I've got very fond memories with the whole conference. Before we get started into our proper podcast, I have to say I've been really enjoying your podcast. Anyone out there looking for another podcast to listen to, I strongly recommend Sally's That Voice podcast. She's full of great messages and one in particular that I really love is your voice is your soundtrack to your personal brand. That's something that I'll always take with me. So, yes, thanks again. Yeah, I think starting a podcast ourselves, it's definitely been a a little bit of an interesting learning curve to listen back to yourself through the the inevitable podcast edits and that type of thing. And uh, definitely something I picked up on in terms of how important it is to get your message across clearly and succinctly is how to command and use your voice. And something I feel like I'm still working with very much looking forward to talking about some of the things that you can help with, as well as uh, just some other things uh, with regard to your experience and, and ties back to water that Anthony's mentioned. So perhaps to get going, would you be able to start with just giving us a bit of a summary and an overview of your career journey so far and what's led you from your water industry experience and now into a podcast, a TikToker, among other things? Absolutely. And I suppose the story started a little bit before urban utilities. So growing up, I always loved public speaking, one of those crazy people, I guess, who always liked to have a microphone in my hand. 
And I had a speech and drama studio when I was younger, just in the front garage of my parents' house. And then I studied journalism and law also at uni, but I went into journalism. So I was working in local radio and then I was a television news reporter. And it's quite common for journalists to go across into public relations. And so I wasn't specifically looking for a job in the water industry. There was a PR role that came up and I crossed to the dark side. They say if you go from journalism to PR, it's crossing to the dark side. Yet I would say it's crossing to the light side because... I absolutely loved it. I was there for four and a half years. We had a fantastic team. I was the, you know, the, the city's glamour girl for sewerage. <laughs> Pretty funny telling people about what they should and shouldn't flush. Yeah, it, it was so fantastic. And it was during that time that I really built, built the confidence to do what I'm doing now. As I mentioned earlier, I was asked by Louise Dudley, the CEO, to help out emceeing the last day of the 2018 Oswater Conference. And I still remember it. I hadn't long been back from overseas and my voice was, you know, (laughs) disappearing on me. Yet I did that and it was fantastic. And I got feedback saying, wow, you should do that full time. So I was like, oh, gosh, is this trying to turf me out of my job or is is this a sign? And it got me thinking, yeah, maybe I could. And then that same week, I'd come out of a meeting and someone pulled me aside and said, Sal, do you mind if me ask me asking, how do you always say exactly what you want to say in meetings? And I found that very curious because for me, often in meetings, I would be focusing on not dominating, <laughs> like not saying <laughs> too much. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I write down what I want to say and I find that I get tongue-tied when it comes time to share and then I get interrupted and then someone else says it and then I leave and I feel like I haven't shared what I want to say. And so I said, well, this is ridiculous. We can't have that. So we started having little sessions in the lunchroom where we'd meet up and talk through different techniques of what you can do. And she was writing everything down going, wow, how do you know all this stuff? And like a lot of people, when it's your zone of genius or your area of expertise, you don't know what you know, right? You just think it's assumed knowledge. It's not until other people say, wow, that's really valuable. And so I thought, all right, let's give this a go. When I was at uni, I survived completely fine on goon and two-minute noodles. So I thought if the whole thing doesn't work out, like I'm sure I'll be quite happy. (laughs) Um, Yet, of course, I have absolutely loved it. It's been a huge success since I left and I get the great job of helping people every single day speak with more confidence and get really practical skills to be able to communicate more effectively. I think that really hits it on the head as far as where we're coming from, Sally, and just you've, you've painted that picture perfectly, I think, in terms of that meeting. And and I think maybe, I don't know if it's an engineer thing, but there's definitely, at least from a personal experience, that moment of wanting to jump into the conversation and, and deliver your message, but perhaps just holding back and maybe just that little bit of self-belief in getting the message across and, and, and an ability to do so in that clear and, and simple term that makes it really easily understood. I say we talk ourselves out of talking. 100%. And if you think less of that... <laughs> then we'd be able to share more, although there are also people who should be doing a bit more thinking before they're talking, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If I could just briefly touch on that experience you had at Urban Utilities, I do remember seeing you on the TV. Can you tell us about some of those highlights that you won't forget? Oh, absolutely. Well, the first thing is, having been a TV journalist, I can tell you right now, it is a lot more difficult, more difficult to answer the questions than to ask the questions. (laughs) 
<laughs> being on the other side was much more challenging. I remember being over at Blimba with the now mayor of Brisbane and we were lowered 40 metres down into one of the deepest shafts in the whole city as part of a um, Balimba sewer upgrade. And that was pretty cool, in the cage all the way down, and we filmed it. And at the bottom, of course, it was, you know, dark and cold. And, yes, I should actually get in, in touch with Mayor Schrinner and remind him of that day <laughs> because it was, it was very curious. I'd say after that, one of the best stories was a, oh, goodness, testing my recollection here of the technical processes. It was an HDD project, horizontal directional drilling, where we were connecting two water zones and it was going across from Murray underneath the Brisbane River over to Pinkenbar. Anthony's nodding, going, yes, I know what you're talking I, I about. I know these projects. It's, you're doing well. Keep going. <laughs> yes, and so we had such a huge length of water pipe laid out. I thought, oh, God, this would look fantastic with drone footage. And so we organised <laughs> it to get drone. Later found out we were a bit close to the airport. But, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> it was a great story. <laughs> so then we did the first part over at Murray, and the idea was to be over at Pinkenbar to watch the pipe come out the, the other end. Now, the project managers neglected to tell me till we got there. They're like, oh, look, Sal, sometimes this doesn't work. I'm like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> they say, well, there's a chance that it can get stuck, like, if it's not the right, you know, Anthony, you know what I'm talking about. Like, there, yep. it can get stuck. And I said, hang on a sec. So you're telling me there are pipes stuck? And he was like, oh, yes, there's one under the, you know, the bay and there's one here. And so, oh, my gosh, I've got Channel 9 there, like, filming. Everybody's holding their breath, thinking this is not the time for something to go wrong. <laughs> and then, of course, out the pipe came and the contractors were really fantastic. We had party poppers and everybody was screaming and cheering. <laughs> and it was, it was so awesome. It was one of those things I will never forget. You felt like an engineer for that moment, didn't you? Well, my um, dad was an engineer and my older sister is also an engineer. Oh, really? So you got pretty close um, ties then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's probably one of the, the nightmare situations I think you're talking about for an engineer, especially a trenchless contractor is, I can only imagine, a horrible sinking feeling where, you know, as much as they try to de-risk all of their potential things that can go wrong on a project, but that's the ultimate. Uh, so, yeah, it must be a, a bit of a, a slight relief every time the uh, the drill head comes out. I can imagine. And there was this amazing young woman who I'm still in touch with on LinkedIn. She was the head of the contracting team. And she, like, looked at me and she's like, don't worry, Sal, we've got this. And when she said that, I totally believed her. I said, this is awesome. And, yeah, I was I was on a high for about a whole week after that project. And then, of course, when the story came out, it was shown at a big celebration breakfast with the team and the contractors. And it's really good to see that because often the media team can be quite annoying. <laughs> like, you know, we're asking questions a, a lot of times and we need a lot of detail and we can appear to maybe get in the way. Yet when you see that story and that project brought to life and that coverage, it makes it all worth it. I think a lot more utilities are doing that now better nowadays, especially in, in the age of social media to really promote, you know, those good projects. And, and Anthony and I have spent some time down at Logan and they definitely have an approach where they love to highlight some of their great stories. And uh, yeah, I think it's great. What engineers do generally is largely unsung. You know, no one really 
cares and stops to look at the road once it's there and being driven on or the the pipes providing essential services but gives us that little bit of a proud moment to uh, at least put a place marker and appreciate our legacy. Yeah, and Simon, I'm glad that you've raised that because this is something I hear quite often from people with a technical background, you could say, is that, oh, well, you know, it's it's technical, it's kind of boring, it's not that interesting, how do I get people excited about this? There is so many ways to package your story, whether it be your story about your work or about yourself, to communicate that in a way that is engaging. Yeah, some lessons about that are definitely... <laughs> Definitely appreciated, yeah. I was going to say, uh, I wanted to ask about one issue that relates again to communication, the advent of, well, through the pandemic, the necessity of teams and, and the communication across this digital medium now that we're we're interacting. One of Anthony's questions was, how do we improve that engagement, say, using Microsoft Teams or Zoom? to uh, maintain that same level of contact and relationship with our team, our client, whoever it is we're talking to. Have you got any tips on that? Oh, gosh. it's. <laughs> I'm thinking back to the last couple of years. It is not fun when you are staring into a camera and, like, people have their, their microphones off and their cameras off and you're, like, talking into the abyss and you're thinking, oh, my gosh. And I have experienced that it can be really, really hard work. And I would say when we're on Zoom or Teams or anything online, we are producers of our own television show. You know, we are producers of our own television show. There's a reason that they found people had, they called it Zoom Teague. And Zoom Teague is a real fatigue that comes from being on back-to-back online meetings all day. People who watch Netflix, say, all day, don't have that same feeling. And the difference is, is Netflix and television is made for our viewing pleasure. (laughs) The framing is good. The lighting is good. And so we can relax and watch. Whereas when we're online, most people make it quite difficult for us to pay attention to. And so when it comes to being online, there's three main things that I would recommend people do. And the first one is in the framing. So you see how um, if you put your hand on top of your head, I know, realise if you're listening, you can't see us, but just go with me. So you're, you're on your webcam and you put your hand on top of your head. You want your hand to be touching the top of the screen. So that's how full you want to be in the frame. Then the second, and also you're, you can show your hands. So I'm hands ha- go to fun with this already, Sally. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm seeing that. So hands go to trust. So the whole time if we are a talking little head and if we're back too far, we don't look trustworthy because you can't see our hands and we are minimising ourselves. So you maximise yourself in the screen. That's the first one, the framing. The second one is the eye line of the camera. So if you're looking down into the camera, I could demonstrate it now, but we're not, we're not on camera. If you're looking down, then it looks like you are looking down at everybody else. And if the camera is high, it looks like you're looking up at everybody else. So keeping that eye line is great. And then my favourite one, By now, everybody should have a ring light. (laughs) It's been two Uh years. Get a ring light. (laughs) Even the even light. You want even light on your face. So even looking at my face right now, I knew that we weren't doing camera. So you can see I've got a bit more light on my right side and it's a bit more shadow on my left just because I've got my blind down. Yet if I was, I've got a class tonight, I've got a ring light here. Let me just switch that on. And you bring your ring light on to give you that full glow. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes a huge yeah. difference. 
it's a huge difference, isn't it? So you can really see my facial expression. And so it's not about looking good. It's about creating a television show that's really easy on the eye for the people. I like these pieces of advice. I struggle. I always prefer the face-to-face meetings and I feel that uh, one of my hands is tied behind my back or maybe both hands are tied behind my back because of the Zoom. You know, I, I need the energy from the room. It's just something that I miss. I wish Zoom wasn't here. I wish Teams wasn't here anymore. I just uh, wish it was back to the old days. Oh, but Anthony, this is a big part as well. Like what if there was no such thing as Teams? Like Wi-Fi was only invented in 1997. You know, what if it's this incredible opportunity to connect with people in the comfort of their own homes from all over the world It's really extraordinary. And taking that mindset into a Zoom meeting is really important. So when I sit down and I'm on Zoom, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I love the internet. I love the camera. This is amazing. Like, look at it, like, right now. We're able to do this. Could have we worked it out in person? We're all in Brisbane, so possibly. Yet look how easy it makes it. You're right. I shouldn't be so negative to the Zoom. I just like the feedback, the vibe in the room, the energy in the room. It's something that I need to get used to. And, yeah, thanks for those pieces of advice. I think, yeah, you're definitely right in terms of that level of engagement and making the effort on the part of turning your camera on, getting that setting more ideal. I've been working across four time zones recently and dealing with people between New Zealand and UK, so trying to find that nice timing for when's a good time to have a chat and a catch-up and and team brief. And Yeah, it really does make a difference when people are engaged and I do try and make the effort to turn my camera on more often than not. Yeah, and you can create rules as well. I've heard of different organisations, they have certain meetings are camera on, microphone on meetings, and then other ones are microphone uh, camera optional. And so it's sort of setting those those standards for people. And one company I was working with for their morning stand-up, it had to be camera on, microphone on, and then the other catch-up during the day didn't have to be. So it's almost like laying down the law a bit. <laughs> yeah, camera's off when eating, please. <laughs> I know. And then it makes it tricky, isn't it, when it's back to back because people are like, oh, well, I don't. And when I was a journalist, they always said, like, never eat on camera. It was like a golden golden rule (laughs) because it just never looks good. Sally, you always seem so in control and obviously you do a great deal of preparation. When you're preparing for a big meeting or, say, an interview on The Good Drop with Hawks and AD as an example of an important meeting, tell me how you prepare. What do you do beforehand? tongue exercises or facial exercises or voice exercises oh thank you I feel like stuff like this I definitely have a level of unconscious competence you know I do it so much that I can do it without without thinking of it I'd say in this area uh, a lot of people are in the so there's you know the unconscious incompetence that you don't even realize that you're not good at it and then it's uncomfortable to go in the conscious incompetence you're like oh gosh I do say um every second word or I do do this. And Simon, I know you mentioned earlier that when you listen back to the podcast, you, you're now aware of all these things that you perhaps wouldn't think that you did. So how do you move up into the conscious competence, which is knowing how to do it? And I'd say the golden triangle of voice. This is, this is great information because this happens before you even make a sound. And the golden triangle is your mind, your body and your breath. So I'd start off with the mindset and it is, oh my gosh, I have been so excited to speak to you guys. (laughs) Like, honestly, 
And I played some music that gets me in the mood. I made sure that before you there wasn't a back-to-back meeting as well, you know, because that can really throw you if you're going from one to another. You've got to give yourself that space to get in the zone. So that's like a really easy top tip. If you've got an important meeting or a presentation, block at least 15 minutes to half an hour before it and make it untouchable. Yeah. So like I'll not look at emails and things like that. Get in the zone. Then with your body, our, our voice is our whole entire body. So I will be dancing, moving my shoulders, twisting around, especially with an online one like this. I didn't want to just go from sitting to sitting. So walking around, getting the body moving. And this is really helpful as well if you have any symptoms of nerves or anxiety. You might feel those butterflies in the tummy, so you twist the tummy. You might feel the, the chest, so nice breaths into the chest. And that bleed that <laughs> bleeds into the third thing, which is your breath. You want to think on the in-breath and speak on the out-breath. Mm-hmm. So when you say that you hear control, I'd say that's the main thing that you're hearing is that I'm breathing in on my pause and then I'm breathing out on my speech. Breathing mm. in on my pause, breathing out on my speech. And that way I'm constantly, I constantly have the fuel for speaking. I think that's what happens. You run out and uh, you get to a point and you're halfway through the point but out of breath. <laughs> yeah, and often it's not um, it's not running out of breath. It's actually the breath being trapped inside. So if you think of your windpipe like a garden hose, when there's tension in the, you know, the jaw and the, the neck and you've got that boa constrictor and that kind of, oh, oh my gosh, in your shoulders, it's like the, the hose gets squeezed. And if it gets squeezed a little bit and the water spurts out, you get that kind of crackly sound like that. And Mm. if it's fully closed, that's when people say, oh, I choked up because the air completely stops flowing (laughs) like that. So often it's not just the breath in, but it's also the breath out. This is gold, Anthony. I know. All I can think about is my breathing at the moment. <laughs> you've you've nailed my voice in one. That that is one hundred percent. That's that's exactly what I do. I feel like my voice gets crackly and and then it it doesn't have a good timber underneath it and yeah, it just it's just constrained. Yeah. So take if that happens, just take a breath in through your nose and then do a bit of a sigh out. So it's just a breath in and then. <sighs> It might be difficult to do that in the middle of a podcast, but this is why people will often have that nervous cough before they start speaking. So you know how they'll be fine, but then before they speak, it'll be <coughs> is the body's way of saying, come on, you're a bit tense. Like, let's let's get a bit of movement in here so the air can flow. It's that little bit of a vocal cord warm up before your, uh, the opera starts singing. <laughs> yes. Well, ideally you want to warm up by even just humming. Humming is a great one. Breath in and then... Mm, and my microphone cuts out when I do that sometimes so I'm not sure if that was picked up but if you're humming the breath is flowing and also you're activating the vagus nerve so the vagus nerve is something I call it the Las Vegas nerve because it parties all (laughs) over the body that's how you remember it the Las Vegas nerve and this is what controls our nervous system from fight or flight which is the freaking out and rest and digest, which is the functioning. So if we can stay in rest and digest when we're speaking, then not only will the air flow a lot easier, we'll actually not oxygen deprive the brain, so we'll be able to think of what to say a lot easier as well. So much biology and physiology wrapped up 
and all of this subconscious process oh, it's it's amazing to have someone break it down and, and explain what's going on and just put out some simple pointers sally can i ask how did you learn this how did i learn it so i trained in speech and drama when i was younger so speech and drama, I did a Stedfords and exams and did theory exams as well. So that's where I learned the basis of a lot of this stuff. And then a lot of learning on the go and a lot of reverse engineering because people were saying, Sal, how do you do it? So I had to say, okay, right, how am I doing this? And I reverse engineer. So like the body breath and the mind body breath is a framework that I've created myself. And most of what I coach are frameworks that I've created myself and I know it might sound a little bit woo-woo but a lot of it comes to me in downloads in showers and things like that um, I also do a lot of studies so every year I'm upskilling so I'm an NLP practitioner I've done my spiritual life coaching I'm constantly reading books about voice and seeing videos and of course because of all the clients that I see and the different types of organizations that I work with I love a new challenge for example last week a company said sal we want to learn how to effectively tell stories how do we get complex information into a story for it to be able to be understood and i know a bit about storytelling i don't have a specific workshop on it because i mainly do voice and confidence but i thought yeah absolutely i can do that and so i did a lot of research and put it all together and it's it's getting rave feedback when you're talking about storytelling, it's really touching a nerve for me. I, I love this, the art of storytelling. And I was reflecting on all this and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going to ask Sally, I bet you there's a link between poor communication and the, the lack of able to tell a story or tell a joke. I just think our world has gone away from communicating via voice and just communicating via text and email. and I just remember some of my best forms of communication was sitting around at a pub and you're telling stories, you're telling jokes. I'm just keen to hear what, what you think about that. Yeah, 100%. You know, as soon as language was invented, we told stories. Richard Branson said storytelling is as old as the campfire and as new as Twitter. And what I love about that quote was he said it at a time when Twitter was the newest thing and already it's evolved. And PowerPoint came along. I think in the 90s, and has really screwed us over <laughs> because it's it's sort of said that we need to have bullet points and information which is proven to not be memorable for people. And there is this, oh, I should make a video about this because, honestly, the PowerPoint and just corporate culture of how presentations should look is ruining good communication there's also the feeling, Anthony, as you say, around the pub, you know, around the backyard, we share stories. It's what we do. Yet we work, walk into the workplace and we feel like maybe it's not professional to tell a story. Or actually the group I worked with, they were engineers as well. And the feedback was, oh, I feel like it's wasting people's time because we want to just get to the point. And if I tell a story, then they might think it's, you know, waffle and not on the point. Yet my response to that was, well, isn't the point for people to remember what you say and to influence decision making? To Anthony's point, that lost art of storytelling and your point around PowerPoint, my contribution is around the difficulty that we have to balance the use of, of devices and communication. And I don't profit to be 100% in the clear on this, 
but like you say, perhaps you, you can set the scene and imagine someone's presenting something on PowerPoint. I think the engagement of the room is is probably somewhere in 50% or less with half of people stuck looking at their device, the other half zoning out because they've got other things on their mind or what have you. But just even the fact that you see people, say for example, a couple at a pub out having a nice a nice meal and both of them having a an engagement with their phone rather than each other. It's a real challenge. And um, I don't know, I, I probably haven't really asked the question so much in all of that, more an observation, but yeah, definitely lots of obstacles to, to get over, I think. Yeah, the great distractification. I feel like I have had a bit of a phone addiction because I was going to all the different apps and then just starting again for no reason. When we're presenting, it is more of a struggle for attention. And we need to grab that attention as quickly as we can. Gary V, who's an entrepreneur, he only has meetings that run seven or 15 minutes. Have you heard this? He he says it's either a seven-minute meeting or a 15-minute. And if you need longer than that, then you haven't got your message succinct enough. I love that. I think some of the advice we had from an earlier uh, interviewee around trying to make everything one third less meetings and for one third less the time. So, you know, instead of an hour, it's only 40 minutes. I think there's so much to do to really sharpen up the conciseness of the message. Say, for example, managers whose diaries are just full of meetings. And I wonder what actually gets done in these meetings. And isn't it funny how half an hour meetings always go for half an hour and hour meetings, the discussion always goes for an hour. Mm, That's right. Sally, just on this point, Simon and I are technical engineers and I suppose I'm a little bit more extroverted than than most engineers, but can you give us some advice when we're trying to explain technical issues where managers want to summarise in one line or two lines or two minutes? What advice can you give on that? (laughs) Absolutely. This is totally my jam. And especially being in a position where I was working with engineers and trying myself to understand complex information, I was constantly blown away by how your minds work. You know, I'm really a words person, not a numbers person, and it's just extraordinary. So what really helped me, and it really helps with communication, is using metaphors or similes. Like how can you make what you're talking about be like something else? So is the, I remember I did a story about the upgrade to the Ipswich Water Network and it was, you know, the the arteries feeding the heart of the city (laughs) and we're in media we constantly use these metaphors I used one with the windpipe talking about it like a hose being squeezed so it's that's an easier way than me explaining how the windpipe (laughs) actually works and the and the muscles so always think about that um if I was going to explain it to a kid how would I explain it to a kid and that will help you come up with those metaphors the next framework which is really helpful is called problem promised land solution problem promised land solution so what we can tend to do when we're managing up is just go straight to the what this is what we're doing we don't create that context around it so one or two sentences explaining the problem this is the problem that we've got then you go to the promised land and the promised land is when everything's all working and it's all fixed utopia the utopia yeah although not There is issues with utopia, but yes, you paint that perfect picture. So the problem might be that you need to finish upgrades 
there is issues with the supply chain. I'm just thinking of something that's been quite <laughs> quite common. Mm. You're not you're not getting the materials in. Mm-hmm. And if you just go and say we're not getting materials in, then that's just kind of like, oh, thanks, you've given me a problem. Yet if we say, okay, we're not getting materials in. We want to be in a position where we can bring this project in on time under budget to make sure that we've got all the road reopened by Christmas or you know or whatever it is. So it's like, okay, I've got the problem, I've got where we're heading, and then you swoop in in the middle with the solution in between. And that's where you say, and so what we're doing is we have phoned X, Y, Z, and we're moving these things around in order for this to happen. Mm. That's a really beautifully concise way to, to put it, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a great takeaway in that. It's also, Simon, remembering, um, this is a reminder for all of us, is that we're not information deliverers. It's not like a pass the parcel. So we don't take our parcel and then give the whole parcel to the next one. We're actually interpreters. So it's about looking at, filtering that down, going, well, I have the whole life story of the project and the issues. What really does this person need to know? How is that relevant for them? And in the beginning, it can be a bit of a a mind frame uh, challenge because you can think, oh, no, but I'll leave out details. But you know that person who tells a story and they'll say, oh, no, it wasn't my cousin's friend. It was like my my second cousin's friend. (laughs) And you're like, okay, well, great. But that doesn't actually change anything materially about the story. I get it. When you're going through your information, is this something that you need to to know or maybe your team need to know, yet somebody above all? someone in a different department might not need to know. And then becoming that beautiful filtration device, you know, they say you compare it to, oh, like whiskey. So in Scotland, Scotch, it's distilled three times. <laughs> they say the best message is distilled three times. So you distill it once, mm. twice, three times, and by that time then you've got something good to present. And hopefully the audience has consumed and digested the message. Oh, yes, and not had too many, I suppose. We're <laughs> going with the alcohol metaphor. <laughs> Thank you for that advice, Sally. I can't wait for my next presentation. I'm going to change it completely around and definitely love the metaphor usage. Yes, thank you for that. I think the idea of stepping away from PowerPoint is a, it's a very challenging one, you know, because I think if you, say, take an Oz water, we're, we're pretty much built behind our PowerPoint. We stand up there and, and deliver to our PowerPoint and God help some people read it for you. <laughs> it's it's a real challenge, but I love that, that idea of being able to simply just tell a message and maybe it's just pictures, but talking about the pictures rather than letting people read the five by five lines by five words and, you know, those, those key message delivery contexts that we've been set against. For sure. I use PowerPoint. So when I present, I do have a PowerPoint deck and it's not about necessarily not using PowerPoint. It's using it for its purpose, which is a visual aid to you. You are the star of the show. What happens at Oswater and other technical conferences is the technical paper gets converted into the PowerPoint presentation rather than you know, the, the technical presentation forms the basis for it and your speech, the presentation, is really the trailer to get people to go and read the paper. Good mm. advice. Yeah, fun, fantastic. The PowerPoints shouldn't be able to be interpreted without the speaker. So when people say, just send me the presentation, mm. I mean, that's as good as sending a, an e-book or an actual yeah. presentation. The, the, the slides shouldn't make sense without the speaker because they are the speaker's visual aid. Mm. I love it already. That's really opened my eyes. 
how many times, Simon, do we put the key dot points and read it out and just, I don't know, use the PowerPoint as our safety net? I think that comes down to to simply practice. And, you know, I'm I'm far from a perfect public speaker, but I think I've developed at least a, a basic competence to be able to speak without completely losing the message or the ability to, to convey it without feeling like a complete bundle of nerves. And to start with, yeah, that was always the problem of wanting to rely on the PowerPoint as your safety blanket. Yeah, look, I think that to me comes down to practice like everything. You'll get better once you do it a lot more. I've got a question, Sally, around probably ties a little bit with that, but confidence. What to do about it? How do, how do we foster it? I can probably preempt some of it, but I want to let you go for it. Oh, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? Confidence is a practice. Confidence is something that you practice. People will say to me, oh, she, she's confident and I'm not confident. Like it's an absolute. Like Anthony's from Italy and I'm from Australia. Like it's something that's a fact. And it's not like that at all. It's like an emotion. It's an emotion. And confidence is something that you need to practice and have actual things that you can do. So I'm kind of hesitating here because I'm thinking, how much will I share about my confidence practice? Because it's quite <laughs> personal. The first one is mirror work. You know, I'd really encourage everybody to look in the mirror and not to make sure that, you know, you've sh shaved and your hair's okay or anything like that, but just to really look in the mirror. No matter what you look like, this is the challenging part of it. You know, when you're looking amazing, it's quite easy to look in the mirror. It's when you're having those days that's not quite your, your best. And you look in the mirror and you say, I'm so glad I'm you. I'm so glad I'm you. Today, I choose an ally, not an enemy. And you and me, girlfriend, are going to slay the day. <laughs> you just come up with your own, your own message. Because the, the thing that really screws us over the most is our own thoughts. And we can walk around listening to our hate squad all day and the hate squad, which has been planted there over time, which is the perfectionist, you you're not good enough, it's the critic, you can't do that, it's the people pleaser, oh, I have to have people like me. And if we get cranked onto that radio, that's what our reality becomes. So it takes some work to move over to the hype squad. So the hype squad is your, your king or your queen, your warrior, your biggest fan, your best friend. The one saying, yeah, you've got this. You can do this. Yeah. And you need a team around you. You need positive people. You can't hang around negative people either, Sally. Is that, uh, is that just a no-brainer? Yeah, it's, uh, I've changed friendship groups quite a few times and also it's the way that we feed our mind with what we're watching and what we're listening to and who we're around, it is the diet for our mind and mm. our mindset and our thinking is going to be a product of that. And that's been the number one thing I've learned since being an employee to being in business. It's just been a total mindset shift in so many ways that I, I think about so many things differently. And it takes work because those automatic habits are so strong. You know, they say by the time we turn 30, 95% of what we think and do is automatic habit from our upbringing and only 5% is conscious thought, right? Oh, my gosh. And so it's in your 30s, if you're not doing that self-development work on 
really building your confidence or changing the people around you, challenging your beliefs, then you're going to just stay with what you're doing. That's... And if it's working for you, great. And if it's not working for you, do something about it. One of the takeaways, and you touched on it earlier, very much has been resonating with me from listening to your podcast was around the effort that you make on yourself. Self-help, self-care and self-improvement. I think you really have opened up my eyes to seeing how much I haven't been doing on myself to make myself better, you know, and, and you really do have to make that conscious effort. Looking back on the last 10 years, I've only spent 10% of the time that I've really should have been spent developing myself. And I'm, I'm only just realizing that now. One question I had around that, and it was something out of your podcast, but I'm desperate to hear about, a <laughs> bit of a fan as well, was your Wim Hof experience um, that you mentioned. <laughs> Tell me all about that. Don't feel bad. Like I spent most of my 20s just getting drunk and going out with not very favourable men. Like it was, you know, <laughs> I didn't really think about it. And the reason it's been the last few years since I've been in business is because you learn that there's a direct direct correlation between your own energy and mindset and your business success. And that's why a lot of entrepreneurs do do the work because you realise that, that it's a, there's a direct link between it, which is that, you know, if you're not your best and your energy is not good, you're not going to make any money. It's not going to work. <laughs> So it's like that imperative. But yes, about two months ago, I did something quite wild. I went down to Threadbow and it was a winter expedition around the Wim Hof method. So Wim Hof is a Dutchman who invented a framework around breathing, cold exposure and mindfulness. And the method is really fantastic for the nervous system, immune system, cardiovascular system, lots of different health benefits. I did it as a personal challenge. It was five days. And when we first got there, I thought, oh, we'll just relax into it. You know, it'll be relaxing. Have a cup of tea by the fire. No, as soon as we got there, we were in the cars, straight down to the river. And they're like, get in. And then my mind was like, hang on, we haven't learned, we haven't learned the techniques. <laughs> but that was all part of it because it was like, well, what if you could do it? without knowing the techniques, you know, so there was just so many of these realizations going, wow, why do I need certain information? Why do I have these thoughts that stop me from doing things? Because in my mind, no, that water is too cold. I am not going to survive. Any human's going to get hypothermia. Yeah, I was fine. We don't stay in there for that long. It was about, only about three minutes. And then on the Saturday, I was in my leopard print bike pants, little sports top, and we hiked up a snow-covered mountain. It was called Dead Horse Gap. So how's that, how's that for you? We were going to do Kosciuszko, but it was too windy. And they said, oh, you know, the first little bit's uphill. No, no, no. It was uphill in snow for 90 minutes, an hour and a half. Like, it was such a bizarre feeling because my heart was pounding because I wasn't really fit enough <laughs> to be doing this. Yet at the same time, I was freezing. And at the top, it was minus eight, minus eight. And I was there in bike pants, crop top. I had my gloves on by that stage, but still. And I share the whole story in my latest podcast episode, if you'd like to get the longer version. Oh, wow. yeah, I just 
I completely broke down. I just started sobbing. That was also funny because the tears became icicles before they even got to the bottom of my face. <laughs> well, mine say that's pretty fresh. It, and I felt amazing. And this was why I broke down. I reflected on it later. It was I did something that I legitimately thought was impossible. I didn't think any human could do it and feel good about it, let alone little old me who potters around Tenerife in inner city Brisbane having my, you know, almond decal, <laughs> getting my like, long red nails done. I wasn't really like mountain woman material in my eyes, yet I did it. And that has been, so, it's been so life-changing for me. It's one of the most life-changing things I've ever done because it made me realise, you know, what else is there that I think I can't do? What else is there that I think I can't do? And now I've got this challenge for myself of what else can I break down? I think it's very much in, in alignment with, with a lot of successful people that you set a challenge, you achieve it, and then you move on to the next challenge. It, it really is a formula that they can't go too far wrong, really, if, if you operate to it. So amazed and impressed and, uh, yeah, looking to take a leaf out of your book. Oh, I'd highly recommend it. They have an a ice bath in the valley. They have a recovery centre where you can go from, like, warm to cold. Um, and also just even try the cold showers. Cranking the shower to cold before you get out. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's a good one. Simon's from Canberra, uh, Sally. I'm from North Queensland. Anything below 20 degrees is cold for me. So this yeah, ice bath this, this ice bath and minus 8 degrees is not something that I'm totally keen on. But if you say it's worth a go, well, maybe I'll put that on the list. But let's, let's just see. I'm not going to promise anything. Oh, you've never and jumped in the ocean. your own curiosity. You know, oh, like man. I have no plans on going mountain biking or bungee jumping or anything like that. It's not about like just doing anything you think you can't do. It's just following that curiosity. And I had that curiosity with Wim Hof. I've had the curiosity with silent retreats, which is something else I've done. Next is fire walking on my list. Ooh. <laughs> we have to get Sally back and see how she's going with some of this. Okay. <laughs> Sally, I've got another question. Elevator pitches. I keep hearing how important it is to have a 30-second elevator pitch that's catchy and fresh and gets everyone's attention. Any pointers, any tips for us, please? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Like some of the formulas with elevator pitches is that you say, oh, you know how there's this problem? Well, what I do is solve this problem. Actually, I recently, here's an example of when I did that. <laughs> and that's quite a good one to use. Yet in Australia, especially, our culture is quite different. We're very, very casual, a bit self-deprecating. And if somebody goes at a networking event, you know, you know how people are really afraid of public speaking? Well, what I do is help people not be afraid. In fact, I just help somebody speak at a conference who previously couldn't even speak on Zoom. Now, you might think that sounded okay, yet with that kind of delivery, you might be thinking, oh, God, who does she think she is? <laughs> you know? So it's, it's a mix of using frameworks yet also being yourself. The number one thing with the elevator pitch is when you go to an event especially, someone's going to ask, what do you do? So it's having that planned answer of what am I going to say if somebody asks what I do? And how do you make wastewater glamorous? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> when I was at Urban Children's, <laughs> was a time in my life when I was single. So, like, I think the dating conversation was pretty bad. And I was like, oh, did you know at luggage point? <laughs> Not very, very palatable. Yes, yeah, so sewerage. We got on national TV twice, once for Australia's first poo-powered car and the other time for Fatbergs. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it is a challenge. But what I would say is every single one of us goes to the toilet. Doesn't matter whether you're the Queen of England or a newborn baby. It's the great thing that unites us. Mm. And every single one of us does it. And if we had a bit more sort of bringing back my old my old campaign speech here, <laughs> yet if people had more of an appreciation of what went on to be able to remove the waste from homes, you know, that's what divides developing and developed nations is the mm. ability to separate drinking water from wastewater which is why in the water network we do more for public health than every doctor, nurse and hospital in the city. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for, for wastewater. Absolutely. I did a speech when I was in year nine, so maybe I was always meant to work in water and wastewater. I did a speech on the world's greatest invention and I did it on the flush toilet. <laughs> yeah. The flush toilet was invented by a man named Thomas Crapper. Yeah, I love Thomas Crapper. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry, Simon, when I try and explain what I do, I often say to people, you know, when you turn on the tap and when you flush the toilet, think of me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know if that's real good, but that's the best yeah. I can come up with sometimes to try and make it a little bit interesting. Oh, absolutely. I remember trying to explain it to my uh, nieces when she was she was very young. And what she came up with is that I, I make sure that the poo doesn't go into the turtles. <laughs> 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 that was kind of point of reference. I was like, "Well, sort of, I suppose." <laughs> kind of. You have to have to interview the turtles in Moreton Bay and find out. Oh, it's it's it is treated to a very very high level, and our turtles out there are just fine. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Just a couple to finish up before we get to the fabulous five, Sal. Firstly, we're going to give you a free plug. Can you specifically talk about? your voice coach programs and I suppose what's involved with them and how do interested people find out more about it? How can they get in touch with you? Yes, well, I'm not an international woman of mystery. You can find me on almost any platform. So LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, I'm at Sally Prosser Voice. Also my website, sallyprosser.com.au. And I have lots of programs. If you're an individual, I can work with you one-on-one. -on -one. I've got lots of six-week <laughs> courses. And like I was mentioning today, I do a lot of working with teams. So if you feel like your team would benefit from, you know, working through metaphors or how to get rid of some jargon and how we can turn that information into storytelling, then that's something that I do as well. But I'd love to hear from you. Even if you just listen to this podcast episode and want to say, hey, you enjoyed it or you've got any follow-up questions, then I'd really welcome any messages. Very good. And I suppose my final question before we get to the, the lighter questions is, how do you unwind? What do you do in your spare time? Yes, well, I actually have a bit of an addiction to jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> so I don't know if you're expecting that. I, uh, I find it difficult just to relax and do nothing. Yet puzzles are a good way for me to get off my screen, off my laptop, off my phone. And I often listen to a podcast while I'm doing it. I'll have something on the TV. And, yeah, it helps me, helps me relax. It's funny you should say that. We have a jigsaw puzzle always on the go. And I do agree. It just does help. It helps me relax. I, you know, you just get away from your desk five minutes. Let's do a couple of little, put a couple of pieces in the puzzle. I, I get it. I really do. It's a little bit that using that neuroplastic part of your brain and and 
you know, make working out how the pieces fit. I, I think it's like doing Sudoku or something. It's a, it's a good little brain exercise. And anything else you do besides puzzles? Oh, for relaxing. So I do, you know, I enjoy my yoga and Pilates and go for walks. And I've really, things are really good at the moment. I've been able to design my business and my life where I don't have a lot of stress. I've got no pets, no kids. It's, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty relaxing my whole life. Like even this right now, I'm feeling very relaxed. Ah, oh, that's great. Great to hear. All right, Sally, well, you've negotiated our serious questions pretty comfortably, I have to say. How about we try out our famous, fabulous five questions and let's see how you go, eh? I'm ready. I'll start. So what has been the greatest piece of advice received and who told you? This came from my mum and she said, you can be the best, biggest, brightest, crunchiest apple in the box and some people just don't like apples. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, don't try to please everyone because you never will. I love that piece of advice. It's so true. I sometimes forget it and I just have to keep being told it. Yeah, you cannot please everyone all the time. All right, this is uh, a good one. See if you can uh, come up with uh, something interesting here. Uh, who would you like to share a dinner with and why? Oh, the pressure's on. Maybe I should say Thomas Crapper. <laughs> uh, no, I thought of this question and I would love to share it with my whole immediate family. So my uh, my dad passed away about eight years ago and my mum, she lives in Sydney now. She's going to move to Brisbane. My little sister is in Copenhagen. My little brother lives in Barcelona and my older sister is up in Weeper at the moment. So we've always been all over the place and it's very rare for us to ever be in the same place together. So mm. that would be a nice thing to do. And if there was a, a special person or a, a famous person, who would you have a dinner with? The famous person, yes. I kept. I, I was like, oh, I really would love to have Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Ooh. I think that would be <laughs> a really good, you know, because the, being especially being in from PR, you know, mm. there's so much PR for and against them on both sides, and oh, I yeah. really think it would be great to speak to them directly to get the story. I'm sure there's a podcast on the royal PR and, and the media circus around it alone. Do you ever miss the, the PR world? Oh, look, I work with lots of clients helping them prepare to speak in the media and I still work with many journalists on their broadcast voice and so I feel like I've got the best of both worlds because I can still keep my finger in it a little bit. Yeah, okay, wonderful. All right, what's your greatest non-work-related achievement? Oh, it's got to be climbing that snow-covered mountain. <laughs> For sure. That sounds yeah, sounds pretty daunting. Okay, question number four is your favourite place to travel and why? My favourite place to travel to is a place called San Sebastian, which is in northern Spain. Mm. Have you been there? I haven't been, no, but uh, yeah, definitely know of. It's so great. It's got the best food and beaches and there's places to hike and, oh, it's just a dream. Tell us more, please. I want to hear a little bit more. Well, I recently went there. My brother got married in Spain early in July and we went up there to San Sebastian. And that's where a lot of the chefs who work in Michelin star restaurants train. Mm. So you'll everywhere you go is like five-star food. 
And oh, for oh, me, oh. I, I like a bit eating, drinking, nature, beach. <laughs> it just has all the things I love. Yeah, that's wonderful. Brings us to our last question, drink related. What is your go-to drink, red, white or other? Voice tea. I'm not even joking. So voice tea is a mixture of like lemon and a ginger and a few other different herbs. And because I'm using my voice so much and need to keep it in tip-top shape, I am I live on that stuff. It mm. was invented by a singer. I didn't realise it was voice tea. I've never oh, heard oh. of it. Yes, yeah, so you can only get it online. It's actually called a voice tea. Mm. I just did the ginger and lemon when I've got a sore throat, uh, when I've got a cold or something. Yeah, perfect. And manuka honey is another good one. Oh, yeah. A teaspoon <laughs> of manuka definitely goes a long way. Yes, I always, I've always got like a sore throat pharmacy waiting here because, as you can imagine, it's a big drama if I lose my voice. Yeah, very much to, to your adage, uh, whether or not you could do your job without your voice. <laughs> and Sally, um, I'm sure you know, but I'm a winemaker at home. So that question's there is to try and extract from you what do you prefer. So you are very close. I don't live too far away from Tenerife, and uh, I'd love to give you a bottle of wine as a thank you for being on the podcast. So what do you like? Are you a red or a white type of lady? Oh, Anthony, you're so kind. Thank you. I am. I drink both, probably in equal amounts. So I would say okay. to me what you think your best drop is. I think I'll bring over a Barbera, which is an Italian grape, which is my favourite. Beautiful. Amazing. Thank you. Not a problem. Well, I think she negotiated the Fabulous Five pretty easily, Simon. Not a, not a drama at all. I, I think very easily handled, although let's say it's it's not exactly an uh, insurmountable wall of defence, you know. They're, they're just meant to be lighthearted things to round the, round the show out. So. And thank you for giving me the heads up on them as well. <laughs> So, Sally, that's the end of our podcast. I'd like to thank you for joining us. I've had a lot of fun. It was great to know you. I already knew you already from listening to your podcast, but it was just so great to, to have some time with you. Very much likewise as well from me, Sally. Really appreciate your time. Um, wonderful bits of advice in there. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.